Welcome to the Dhamma Podcast at Pariyadi.org. The audio recording that follows was from a talk given by Dr. Paul Fleischman on June 25th, 2001, at Weyhauser Chapel at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. More information about Pariyadi and the resources it offers will follow this talk. There was a cartoon in the New Yorker about uh, a year ago. There's a Himalayan sage. He's sitting on top of a mountain, and the cartoon, he's sitting right on top of the mountain. And he's got long robes and a long hair and a beard. And a young man, uh, a young man with a backpack is climbing up the mountain, looking up to this august, wise, eastern philosopher. And um, the sage says to him, everything you want to know or need to know about meditation is in my book. Unfortunately, it's out of print. (laughs) And there was another one with the same scenario where the sage, same sage, is sitting right on top of the point of the mountain. And an older person is climbing up to him. This older person looks sort of like an aging hippie. He's bald, but what little hair he has is tied back in a ponytail. And uh, the sage says to him, frankly, I was hoping to attract a younger audience. (laughs) When I started meditation uh, more than a quarter of a century ago, it was exotic. It was Eastern, and it was mostly for a younger audience. And uh, that's changed significantly, as you all know, and you can tell if you look around tonight. I want to start with an anecdote that's uh, intrigued me lately, and it's an anecdote about uh, the scientific method or the objective observation of reality without preconception. The anecdote involves two college dropouts today as really for the whole century, we've been concerned with the idea of people completing their education and not dropping out. Here we are in this incredibly beautiful campus. But this story is about two guys who dropped out of college, one named Ed, one named John. Both came from good backgrounds. They could afford to go to good schools. They had families that could economically support them through college. And in spite of that, both of them dropped out. Ed came from the Midwest. This is true. The story is a historical anecdote. Ed came from the Midwest and he attended the University of Chicago where he studied biology, but he dropped out before completing his degree. And uh, we had an expression when I was training to be a psychiatrist. I was in New England, of course, and um, the expression was, if you take the United States and pick it up by New England, all the loose nuts will roll down to California. (laughs) So, Ed follow that theory, and he rolled down to California. And he found himself living on the coast of California, a kind of hand-to-mouth existence. This story goes back to in between the two world wars. And I, I gather from what I've read at that time, California's oceans were still very productive, filled with all kinds of fish and marine life. And he was just living a life of a bum along the ocean and uh, eating the fish he could catch every day, even selling a bit of fish and living out of his garden. So a very bohemian or uh, beatnik or pre-hippie kind of California-style life. He didn't ever pursue any further 
schooling, and he had no other means of livelihood. But he found that uh, the hand-to-mouth existence was so impoverished he couldn't uh, survive on that. So eventually he began a very minimal business. His interest was the life of the ocean, the intertidal life, that is, um, between the high tide and the low tide mark. There's a select group of plants and animals, the intertidal zone. And he was fascinated with this, though he was technically a dropout and a bum. He kept observing, kept observing, and had a small business collecting marine intertidal animals and plants and selling them to biological supply houses, to colleges that uh, where people were studying this stuff. It was a very marginal business. He did it for his entire life until he died and never earned much of a living. And so the surprising twist to the story of Ed, the college dropout, is that he wrote two books. One of them he co-authored. It was a book called The Sea of Cortez, which is about the area in between Baja California and Mexico. He was one of the explorers of this area. But his other book is called Between Pacific Tides. To me, a very beautiful title. Pacific, of course, means peaceful. So between the tides of peace. And uh, there are two kinds of textbooks in science. Almost all scientific textbooks are very short-lived. Science is always changing. The information is changing. And a textbook becomes quickly outdated. It may be updated by the editors or author. And then when the editors or author die, the book dies with them. There's another kind of scientific, scientific textbook, however. We had this in medicine where a book is so revered that even once the author dies, the next generation of scientists, instead of publishing their own book under their own name, when they revise the old textbook, they keep the deceased author's name on it. So that textbook just goes on year after year. Ed died in 1948, but his book, Between Pacific Tides, is still an imprint textbook on marine life, and his name still leads the list of authors, even though he's been dead for half a century. So he became a greatly revered scientist, and in a minute I'll go back and say more about that. But to jump to his friend John, John was a younger man who was also a college dropout. His parents sent him to school. He went to college numerous times, and by his late 20s, he had decided that he would never be able to complete college, and he found himself living on the coast of California. He became a disciple or a, a younger friend of this marine biologist, Ed, and um, he, John, ended up with the kind of life that we now associate with college dropouts, which is that he won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> you all know John. We're talking about John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck was living as a kind of a bum on the coast of Monterey. He wrote a lot of books about the bums of Monterey, Cannery Row. The uh, figure in Cannery Row called Doc is a fictional makeover of the friend Ed. And a very interesting point about John Steinbeck, which I'd never appreciated until I got into this information recently, is that Steinbeck was a serious student of biology. In fact, his relationship with Ed, whose full name was Ed Ricketts, was the most formative intellectual experience of his life, according to him and to all his biographers. And a lot of what I was taught, mistaught, 
when I was in high school, everybody reads John Steinbeck. I read John Steinbeck. And I was taught that he was, say, a socialist or a lefty, and his ideas had something to do with improving society through socialism or something like that. And that's completely wrong. He had absolutely no direct political involvement with socialism or anything leftist or anything at all. He was not a political creature. And his main interest was ecology. And the main theories underlying Grapes of Wrath, his most famous book, are ecological. And if you reread Grapes of Wrath with this in mind, you find it's a, a much richer and uh, even more modern book. Um, the Jode family is like an organism. There are separate limbs that are not really functioning well. As the, uh, the environment changes, the organism is required to adapt and change to its environment and becomes initially a more coherent organism, as happens to all of us when we are forced to face and deal with change. And eventually, however, as happens to every organism, it dies. And so the Jode family is also faced with this ultimate crisis of dissolution. There's a famous passage in Grapes of Wrath. A lot of people remember this when I comment on this. They say, oh, yes, I remember that. That uh, as the Okies are heading west to California in the 1930s, the topic of the book, The Grapes of Wrath, there's a scene in which Steinbeck describes them on the highway as if he, the author, were high above them. And he looks down upon them and says they're like a hive of ants with their center in California and the limbs of ants moving towards California. And, uh, of course, if you read it as a socialist novel, then that's not particularly meaningful. But, again, Steinbeck was trying to understand human beings in the context of ecology. Ecology at that time was not as developed a science as it is now, but uh, what was known, Steinbeck knew he was up on the literature through his discipleship with Ed Ricketts. And, incidentally, Ricketts' first book, The Sea of Cortez, was co-authored with John Steinbeck. I found out, in reading about Steinbeck lately, I found out to my surprise that during his lifetime, he got the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1962, died in 1967. During his lifetime, he was the most successful author who had ever lived. Sold more books than any human being had ever sold. And, you know, partly it's undoubtedly just the idiosyncrasies of greatness. It's hard to account for what makes someone either popular or great. But I find myself wondering whether his deep concern with human communication and the creation of wholes out of parts. That's the theory of ecology that he was interested in. How does an organism cohere? How does an ecosystem cohere? What gives coherence to the whole when it starts with individual discrete units? I wonder whether that knowledge, that systematic pursuit of his, is part of his skill as a great communicator. And we'd have to say a great communicator on behalf of human goodness or uh, human coherence. I start with that because uh, one of the main drifts of my talk tonight will be that uh, I started with the cartoons, and the cartoons are based upon the uh, sense of meditation as something foreign, uh, exotic, unfathomable, something to do with the Himalayas. Basically something farcical. Almost all of us, uh, almost all people in the Western Hemisphere, and now really almost all people in the world, are deeply embedded in the scientific tradition. The great change that's happened on the planet is the leadership of the attempt to understand 
based upon observation of reality without preconception. That would be the basis of the scientific method. So it was very important to me in my attempt to find meditation and to become someone who would meditate, to find a meditation that was based upon the same sort of open-ended, empirical, direct experiential observation, rather than a meditation that's based upon any particular preconception. I myself was interested in finding out what leads to inner peace. How do some people become peaceful? Naturally, my real interest was personal. I mean, anybody interested in this is really interested because they're seeking that themselves. But also because I was trained in these uh, scientific schools of thought and psychiatry. I also, I followed that my interest in two angles. One is, what can I do to help myself? What will help me become more peaceful? And the second was, what can be said about it scientifically? Is there any truth to the quest for inner peace? Is there any essence to it? Is there any lawfulness to it? I would say that I think that there is a lawfulness to the quest for inner peace, and that, like most laws, they're simple. And they're relatively obvious. Most important scientific discoveries are based upon mere observation. So I tried to observe both myself, what would help me, but I also looked around in history and philosophy. What did people who we consider peaceful people, what did they do? Is there any common pattern? I mean, Gandhi was in India in the 19th and 20th century, and Whitman was in America in the 19th century. Buddha was in India thousands of years ago. Is there any common pattern? Is there anything we can say as a law that if you follow this law, you'll find inner peace? And I would say I think there is. And uh, I'll just give, I I can't give tonight the uh, depth of it, but I'll give a few steps of, of this lawful path and then we'll discuss some parts of it. Most of these things I'm going to say, I hope, will be uh, intuitively obvious. That is, once you hear them, you'll say, well, everybody knows that, or I thought of that, or that's obvious. And that's important because most people, or probably everybody in this room, has to some degree pursued the question and has to some degree come up with the answer first thing that is part of the life of inner peace is association with peaceful people. There's a famous aphorism in the Buddha's teaching in which Ananda, one of his chief disciples, says to him, I've heard it said, sir, Mr. Buddha, I've heard it said that uh, association with wise and good people is half of the path. And the Buddha replies, no, that's incorrect. It's the whole path. I don't know that one aphorism stands for all the teaching, and a lot of the aphorisms then, as now, are uh, intended as teaching tools, but he couldn't have put it more emphatically. If you look at the lives of peaceful people, without exception, their path begins, as everyone here 
has begun by seeking out other people who know something about it or know more about it. And we could put as a corollary or as a second principle that there's a collected human wisdom on this. Nobody who's seeking peace is the first person or is alone. There is a human community of people who've studied this, who've searched for this. And so there's a collected wisdom. So we have both the living people and the collected literature or wisdom of the past. And all peace seekers who are successful make themselves familiar to some degree with the peace seekers of the past. One of my favorite examples there is Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman, mid-19th century American poet, often usually considered America's greatest poet. Whitman never really went to school. He went to a kind of primitive elementary schools that rural 19th century America had, and after that, that was the end of it. Had no college experience whatsoever. Was of the social class that you couldn't drop out of college. Couldn't go. And uh, when he was 35 years old, he wrote what almost universally is considered one of the greatest books of all time, Leaves of Grass. In his lifetime, he more or less obscured how he did that. One of his concerns was that his book be taken for itself and not be classified within the context of literature. But by the end of his life, he was quite well known, and he gave a more candid account of how he was inspired and how he learned what he learned. A great deal of it was direct personal observation and experience, but some of it was a serious studenthood, self-taught, in the great classic literature of peaceful lives, spiritual values. So even those who appear to generate it entirely on their own are actually students of other people. So we have seeking peaceful people. We have seeking the collected literature or information about peace. Then a few steps I'll give slightly more emphasis to because I think that although I find them somewhat intuitively obvious, somewhat um, irrefutable, obvious, today in America it seems that they're not obvious. When I mention them, lots of times people... Don't immediately click with them. Two things I'll kind of link up. Inner peace is dynamic, and inner peace is selective. So let's talk about dynamic first. I mentioned to... uh, I was kidding around with Bonnie before the talk, and I said the poster that the local Vipassana Association made with a picture of me smiling on it. I don't like to come to lectures by smiling people. You know, nobody smiles all the time. When inner peace is construed as a static, non-living emotion, it's preposterous. And if you look at a lot of what I'll call New Age religion, New Age philosophy, New Age practices, uh, they're typically accompanied by a picture of someone who is just delightfully happy. It's silly. It's just silly. Inner peace is dynamic. That means to some degree, you have it. To some degree, it grows within you. To some degree, it deepens. And to some degree, it will fade or it will be temporarily eradicated 
or it will be lost to you in some dark night of the soul and then will return and then may return more deeply, more enduringly or less deeply, more enduringly that is to say it's a dynamic thing it's a dynamic thing like all living phenomena if we look at a human being all we see is dynamism constant, constant, constant change nothing permanent so how could any emotion be permanent? And the seeking of inner peace as a static, unchanging, unfeeling, false emotion of perpetual glee is extremely untrue to human experience and to the human heart. Maybe I'll... Just a few passages from Cultivating Inner Peace on this one issue, which I emphasize because it, uh, again, it, it sometimes gets lost to people on the path. Cultivating inner peace doesn't eliminate problems, but it facilitates overcoming them with a particular flavor. You can't strive for uniform bliss in the name of peace. The pursuit of inner peace is a self-regenerating way of life self-regenerating. You have it, but it fades or it disappears and you regenerate it. As long as we live, we will be spun with demand and action, but we can design an orienting axis of stability. Peace is not an absence of problems, but a set of problem-solving attitudes. Very important. A lot of people looking for inner peace will get upset when they get upset. Gee, I'm upset and I'm not supposed to be upset. That proves that the path I'm on isn't working or there's something wrong with me or why am I not like the others? The answer is, it's dynamic. The next quality we talk about, seeking peaceful people, contacting the wisdom of the human collective, recognizing that peace is dynamic, it's not a fixed thing. And then the fourth one, Peace is selective. Probably, it's today this fourth one is the one to most emphasize to oneself or in a conversation I would emphasize most to you. As I said, I, I think these things are obvious laws of the search for inner peace by laws that would, if there are laws, if in fact, I'm correct. They would be true in all times and in all places. That's what a law is. But in certain cultures and at certain times, one or another aspect will become more important. Peace is selective. So supposing we said, supposing somebody said, well, look, I would like to cultivate inner peace. I'm on the path of peace. I'm doing some practice or technique to... Uh, meditate or improve my sense of peace and when I stop meditating the way I spend my life is I go to violent movies I uh, look at internet pornography I drive at 70 miles an hour and um, I drink smoke pot and uh, never sit still so you'd say well that's ridiculous how can you find inner peace and yet all of us to some extent are living in a culture in which our behavior is moment to moment antithetical to what makes a human being feel peaceful. And those of us who don't abuse our modern culture or don't indulge pathologically in its greatest defects, nevertheless, 
need to be selective about what we do. When I studied people whose lives seem to exemplify the quest for inner peace, people like Whitman, Gandhi, Thoreau, Buddha, the one thing that they absolutely shared in common was the concept of a selective life. In some traditions, in Christian traditions called intentional life. In Buddhist traditions called mindfulness. I use the word selective, a non-judgmental, non-tradition-based idea that what you do is who you become. I'm going to say two things that sound opposite and sound in tension. The first one is, if you're just setting aside time to feel peaceful, if you're practicing some meditation, even Vipassana meditation, which I like and practice, and we'll talk about a great deal more before the evening's over, even if you're practicing that, you sit still, meditate, and then the rest of your life is a life of frenzy, restlessness, distraction, how can anything possibly help you? So the, the important point of selectivity is, and this is the truth found by all peace seekers in all times, and it's the thread that ties together the concept of living a life of inner peace is, as much as possible, as often as possible, orient your life towards those things that make you feel peaceful and select out those things that get in your way, harm your quest, make you feel agitated, restless, unhappy, or desperate. Should be intuitively obvious, but it is not intuitively obvious to most people today. And in fact, the um, new age or new attitudes of uh, towards the formerly Eastern disciplines are attitudes that uh, one can get away with anything or do anything just so long as one has this practice or this discipline. Something I think is quite self-deluding. So peace is dynamic. You can't hold it rigidly. It's fluctuating. It's changing like every human thought, every human feeling, every human organ. Our life itself is fluctuating. Peace is dynamic. But peace needs to be selective. One needs to be making choices according to one's inner tuning fork as to what's good for oneself. And if one is serious about finding a peaceful life, one needs to select in and select out. Now, the thing I said, I would say something that sounds contradictory, but is like a tension where two things meet. Another important point, however, is that one does need separate times and place to cultivate inner peace. So the first point is, there is no separate time or place. If you say, I have a separate time or place, so right now I can do anything I want and agitate myself and expose myself to things that will leave a residue of misery inside of me, then you're fooling yourself. How can you be adding pollutants to the lake and not expect the lake to get polluted? That means you can't just select to be peaceful for one hour twice a day or 15 minutes twice a day. It's the way you live that will be a key determinant of how you feel. On the other hand, there do need to be times set aside emphatically or specifically for the practice of peace in a more intense, systematic, and focused way. Nobody can fully select a life of inner peace. There's no such thing. 
uh, one of the interesting um, little features of my career is having met many people who've uh, been in monasteries or other religious lives in multiple traditions, Catholic traditions, Buddhist traditions, etc. And people who encase themselves in a monastery may find a very good life there, but it's not intrinsically any more peaceful than any other life. Being a computer scientist is not intrinsically less peaceful than being a monk or a nun. You still have to get along with people. You still have to get along with yourself. You still have to perform some important functions. So the selectivity is much more personal and intelligent, that is to say, tuned to one's own tuning fork. It's not institutional. Merely one institution or one nomenclature will not be the proper selection. And even whatever life one picks, that life must also include a separate time and space for more intensive cultivation of inner peace. Just read a few paragraphs about that. Regarding peace's dynamic, like a compass needle, inner peace is a continuous returning. You will always have problems. Inner peace is cultivated when you utilize problems as inspirations to reassert the dominance of tranquil spirit over the perturbations of little matter. Compass is always being moved. It's always swinging. Your life will always be swung with negative difficult, troubling things. There's no escape from that. The dynamic part of peace is an attitude not of wishing that you are more peaceful than you are, but always turning that needle back to true north. Regardless of what happens, turning back to true north. That goes with the sentence, peace is not an absence of problems, but a set of problem-solving attitudes. Selectivity slightly different than dynamism. To cultivate inner peace, you'll have to think like this. I'll simplify my life. Constantly returning my compass towards peace is a start, but is not enough. I'll also have to trim the fat, relinquish the trivial, in order to enhance the essential. Peace is also a not doing. Peace is not just a more or better way to be human. Peace is also a determination to become less human. My editor hated that line. I insisted upon keeping it in. Yeah. Peace is being less human. One of the things we hear in our society today is, oh, you know, be more, do more. So it's also important to remember, do less. Which less? It's not like there's a rule. It's not like there's one thing you shouldn't do. But each person needs to find within themselves those things that are toxic to their personality, to their life, and uh, diligently make an effort to eliminate them. Another aspect of inner peace, seeking peaceful people, becoming familiar with the human treasury of thoughts about peace, understanding that peace is dynamic, it's not going to be a something you grasp in your hand, it's something you return to hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times. Being selective about what you do and don't do, leading an intentional life. Closeness to nature. No matter what tradition you look in, even those traditions, you know, it's said that uh, 
the Western religious traditions have not been friendly to nature. The Bible, there's a famous essay by an ecologist named White, he's actually a historian, who said that the Bible begins with man being given domination over nature, and that's the start of the ecological crisis in the Western world. Personally, I have doubts about that, but um, whatever tradition you look in, it doesn't matter. All people who seek inner peace find themselves in in a friendly relationship to nature, and nature is variously defined. Of course, up till the 20th century, there was no concept of ecology, really, but all peace seekers have always intuited that some connection to living, other living things, non-human living things, plants and animals, is always a proper selection. Numerous examples of this, of course. Throughout the Christian monastic traditions, the Buddhist traditions, a constant reference to peacefulness to animals. St. Francis, of course, is emblemized in this way. Buddha is emblemized in this way. Buddha's uh, first sermon, he's usually shown surrounded by deer, since he was teaching in the deer park. But more realistically, more uh, less metaphorically, I think almost everybody finds that uh, some contact with natural environment has an immediate calming and soothing effect. There was a famous psychological study. If you ask people, tell me something lovely from your childhood, a good memory from your childhood, almost without exception, people mention some scene in nature. And this includes people who've grown up in entirely urban areas. If you ask people from Manhattan, tell me something lovely part of your childhood, a pleasant memory. They'll say, well, it was the day I went to the park or the day we looked at the river. There are a number of other points, but I'm going to bring this part um, to close with. I use the phrase participation, or we could say participation with care. I know that uh, when I started looking for uh, a way to be more peaceful, I went to India, etc. Frequently I heard people saying, well, that's just staring at your navel, or it's just selfish. And I never have come upon any tradition of people cultivating inner peace that didn't emphasize the importance of making a social contribution. I've never come upon any peaceful tradition that was, in fact, narcissistic or solipsistic. It's always emphasized on any path to inner peace that the more fully one gives to other other beings, so not necessarily people, people, animals, plants, and other things, the more one can feel harmony and peace in oneself. And I'll spend a little more time on that a little later, but just to emphasize what is not always obvious, that to cultivate inner peace, you also have to cultivate non-inner peace. To actually live a life that has these sorts of principles in it, not easy. There is not immediately support for this way of being a person in our culture today, and I don't know if and when there has been, but in our culture today there is not. When I determined to look around and find something that would be valuable for me, I came upon Vipassana meditation as taught by Mr. Goenka. 
And I came upon many other things too and eventually honed in on this Vipassana for a number of important reasons. There was no one clincher, but there were many clinchers, many things that made Vipassana seem more workable, more authentic, more useful. The first is, it's based upon observation of reality as it is. I went to India while I was still in medical school. I studied some medicine there and I also went to many kinds of ashrams, many kinds of religious places. And there was just a, an unbridgeable disjunction between my education and training and the things to which I was being introduced in the name of peacefulness or yoga or meditation. Many things that seemed to me to be fanciful, even if we say my culture may be deluded and I may have been wrong, which is always possible, nevertheless there was an unbridgeable gap. I couldn't uh, participate in things that seemed fanciful. The classic one to me is, it's only uh, picking on a metaphorical example, certain traditions in India, if you meditate on a deer skin, that's good. And if you meditate not on a deer skin, that's not good. Hard, hard for a, somebody just out of their psychiatry residency to believe that your life happiness depends upon sitting on a deer skin. So I was delighted when I came upon Vipassana, observation of reality as it is. We'll go into a little more detail what reality, how to observe it. Reminded me of the world of my life and my training, my scientific attitudes. It's analogous to the world that leads to the freedom of spirit and the creativity of a Ed Ricketts or a John Steinbeck. No preconception. The goal of a Vipassana meditator is to not believe in it. No preconception, no belief. Vipassana emphasizes experience. Here we have something that you could say it's the scientific tradition or you could say it's compatible with the scientific tradition. Observation of reality as it is without preconception, without belief, based upon one's own experience. One of the most famous discourses of the Buddha, you could say the most famous discourse of the Buddha, was given to laymen and laywomen, not to monks and nuns. Buddha's often uh, described as talking to monks and nuns, but his most famous discourse was given to a village in northern India in which he said, don't believe in your scriptures. Don't believe in your government. Don't believe in me. Don't believe anything I'm telling you. Just practice what I'm describing and believe in your own experience. Remarkable that that existed 2,500 years ago, we feel it's so modern in temper. Another important, some of the, these are the things important to me about Vipassana. Another thing about Vipassana, as I was taught it when I came upon Mr. Goenka in India, who was teaching Vipassana courses, 10-day courses, as I'm about to describe in a minute or two. Courses are for free. Teacher takes nothing. Teacher can't be paid. If the teacher's paid, it's not Vipassana. I'm told today that in the 
in the United States, there are people who call themselves Vipassana teachers and who charge, or there are Vipassana centers that charge. I don't have any patent on the word. Mr. Boyka doesn't have any patent on the word. Anybody can use the word, but you can't get Vipassana if you've paid money. You're not getting Vipassana. The example I like to use is if someone has a restaurant and I go to that restaurant and I pay for my meal, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't negatively judge that. Everybody should have a way to earn a living. I myself work for money, earn a living. But if one of you invites me to your home, give me supper, and as I'm about to leave, I say, that was a very nice evening, thank you for supper, and you, you stop me from leaving at the door and you say, you owe me 20 bucks. There's something wrong with you. We all know, everybody knows, whether a person is spiritual or not, whether a person has ever participated in any spiritual tradition or is a complete skeptic, everybody has had spiritual transmission. We know that between two people, something passes that is not tangible, it's not material. Well, if it's just something common, we don't call it a spiritual transmission. If it's something negative, negative things get transmitted between people. We tend not to call it a spiritual transmission. But the, when we go to somebody's house for dinner, we know we're getting more than food. If you pay for Vipassana, it's not wrong. It's just not Vipassana. You're not getting what is transmitted between people when a gift of that magnitude is given and received. The emotional, spiritual accompaniment of the gift requires that it be a gift, that it be a free gift. So there's nothing wrong with running a restaurant, but that's not the same as going to somebody's house for dinner. Then another important thing about Vipassana it is actually the practice of the Buddha before the religion Buddhism came to exist. The Buddha never used the word Buddhism. Buddhism is a much later term. The Buddha understood himself to be a ethical and spiritual educator. He didn't found a religion, and he was explicitly against the founding of a religion. But he did practice Vipassana meditation, and he taught Vipassana meditation. So it's, it was comforting to me or inspiring to me that the authentic practice still exists and that one can practice this without becoming a part of any religion. To say a little more about how Vipassana has taught what it is, how it relates to those first points I made about the path of inner peace, the life of dynamic relationship to peace, selectivity, selecting in, selecting out, people of peace, etc. Vipassana meditation was taught by the Buddha, has been in the world for 2,500 years. But after about 500 years after the Buddha, it began to wither away due to people changing it in various ways, coming in contact with different culture, being taught by people who didn't fully understand it. And we find that after about 500 years, it seemed to disappear, more or less, from India. And it disappeared from the world, except in a very few places where it was preserved in Asia, like in Burma. People kept practicing it, but most of the people practicing it were monks. They spoke only their own languages. And no one in the world could know this thing existed, more or less disappeared. 
in the 20th century in Burma, there were some monks who realized this should not be taught only to monks. It should be taught to people, lay people, anybody. And so a lay tradition developed. There were some Burmese laymen who became Vipassana meditators. One of these, Mr. Uba Kin, was a member of the government of Burma, which at that time was a, under British rule. So he, Mr. Uba Kin, was uh, very fluent in English. Because of this, he could start teaching people in English. He was the first person to teach in a more accessible language for about 2,000 years. Mr. Goenka, who is not of Buddhist background, he was a, an Indian living in Burma, so under the British Empire, people of the different parts of the empire mingled in countries. So Mr. Goenka was from India. His, his heritage was from India. He was born in Burma. He was not a Buddhist, but he learned Vipassana meditation from Uba Kin. Vipassana, as Mr. Goenka teaches it, is the same as Uba Kin taught it. It's the same as the Buddha taught it. But the specific matrix has now been adjusted to be available to ordinary people, Western people, people who speak only English, people who aren't necessarily familiar with sitting cross-legged, people who are not at all Buddhist and not interested in becoming Buddhist. The courses are taught 10 days residential teaching. Maybe this is the biggest stumbling block for people who hear about it for the first time. Like, you have to go away for 10 days? That's quite a big investment, quite a lot of time. Maybe next year. <laughs> and now there are people who say they're teaching Vipassana, charge a little money, and they're just teaching one evening. You get the whole thing in one evening, why go for 10 days? Vipassana is taught in 10 days because of a number of features. Authentic meditation, authentic quest for inner peace, an authentic technique that actually helps you, has to take into account all of you and the reality of you. We started with the fact that Vipassana is observing yourself as you are, reality as it is. Every human being is a mammal designed to struggle, to be a predator, and to survive. Lots of times when I say people are mammals, there's a laugh in the audience tonight. I don't know. It's too hot for people to laugh. I don't know why people laugh when I say mammal, because we all know we have heart, we have lungs, we have kidney. We're mammals. We're also psychologically mammals. When you look inside, no one just finds a peaceful, easy-to-get-along-with, relaxed inner self. The Buddha is said to have struggled for seven years until he attained Nibbana, whatever that is, what the Buddha attained, some very high state of inner peace. Seven years, it took the greatest. So 10 days is a pretty reasonable initial step. And what you find, if you close your eyes and sit still with yourself, and actually it doesn't matter whether you know what Vipassana is, or you just do this for 10 minutes on your own, what you find is all of your personality rises up lovely things about yourself, people you care about, happy memories, anger, aggression, fear, hatred, every possible form of human foible and human evil is in every one of us. So for a real meditation that isn't just a gimmick, that isn't just something that makes you feel good for five or ten minutes, for meditation that will lead you to peace, it has to be as deep as 
as you are. A meditation that works, by works I mean, it takes who you are and helps you live a selective, dynamic, peaceful life. For that to happen, the meditation has to be as powerful and authentic as the depth of all your thoughts and feelings. A meditation that will turn you to a life of peace has to take all that's within you that's antithetical to peace and turn it. It took the Buddha seven years. It's taken me 25 years, and I've still got a long way to go. So 10 days is not that much. You have to start with something significant and deep. Otherwise, you're just practicing some feel-good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not condemning anything anybody does. But we want to notice the difference between something that takes into account the depth of human nature and something that simply gives you a little buzz. So Vipassana is taught in 10-day courses that are intended for someone who's serious enough and committed enough to be able to say, well, I can make a reasonable attempt to learn meditation by investing 10 days, and, and that's how important it is to me. The Vipassana, as we teach it today, is taught for free in these residential camps. How, where does the money come from? If it's taught for free, the answer is at the end of a 10-day course. If you like it, you can give a donation. If you don't like it, you don't have to give a donation. And uh, we find that we get donations. People feel it's great and are glad to give a little money to help the next group. Remember I said that if you pay for it, it's not Vipassana. The spirit isn't there. So you can only give a donation when your course is over. It's too late. You've already gotten it. So you can't pay for your own experience, but you can pay for someone else to have the camp rented and have the food purchased. And then they can have the experience for free. In the first three days of a Vipassana course, you're asked to sit still. If you can sit cross-legged, you can do that. Lots of Westerners, and like my joke from the cartoon, you know, I was hoping to attract a younger audience, so those of you who are older, may have some physical problem, can't sit cross-legged, it doesn't matter. People sit in chairs. The posture, it's not, an, it's not a form of athleticism. It's just a, a way to be a... a both a better human being and, as I said somewhat kiddingly earlier, less of a human being. So people sit in any position. And you're asked to sit still, be silent, no talking for 10 days or 9 days, first 9 days. And you're given very clear, very specific, very exact directions. That was very comforting to me. I had read a great deal about spiritual traditions and you know, I, I like that everybody likes to think they're smart, so I like to think, well, I'm probably smart, but all this thing, what's the sound of one hand clapping? I don't know, you can't study that in a medical text. You can't figure that out. It's not for me. Vipassana is taught very rationally. The Buddha's actual teaching was incredibly uh, elegantly precise and exact. It's quite remarkable to see something we, we say is the ancient man or the ancient mind. The Buddha's almost in prehistory. We don't have a very... A detailed history of that era, and yet his method of teaching is uh, just out of modern uh, education. Break it down into small steps, make every step precise and exact, help the student feel positive about what they're learning, give people a positive experience right from the start so they don't feel they're failing, and teach them step by step by step. The actual imagery that the Buddha used, it's not too flattering to modern people. But uh, he said it's like training a horse. Train people gradually, step by step. They learn like horses. I guess horses were very noble in those days. 
So for three days, one learns the introduction to Vipassana, the introduction is called Anapana, you don't need to know all these names, meditating on breath, a simpler form of meditation, just observing your breath. As we discussed, the essence of Vipassana is just observing things as they are, no preconception, no religion, no ideology. Ed Ricketts going down into the intertidal zone and just seeing what's there and how do these creatures relate to each other, just observing. So just observing breath. And as one observes one's breath, one's mind comes on the surface, lights up. And all that you are, all that you've ever thought or felt or experienced begins to rise up. After three days, you switch to a meditation that's taught each day slightly differently with a little more detail and a little more um, sort of forward teaching so that you're getting something deeper, you're getting something more skillfully. So the general description I give now shouldn't be followed by anybody. I mean, there's much more detailed teaching. And the teaching emphasizes observation of the entire mind and body, just observation as it is. But the specific focus is the rising and vanishing of sensations on the body. Every human body is an aggregate of atoms, molecules, atomic, molecular, physiological processes. There's constant change. Every person comes into the world, stays here briefly, and in this brief time that we're here, there's incessant dynamic turnover in every tissue and every thought. Nothing stays, nothing lasts. And then the human being vanishes again. And in this dynamic changing system, we have this mind that gives us the capacity to observe ourselves objectively, realistically, without any religion, without any philosophy, without any preconception, just coming to terms with who am I? And then one is free to say, what makes me happy? What makes my life meaningful? What makes me peaceful? How can I gain mastery over my mind? During a Vipassana course, you're silent, so you're turned totally inwards toward yourself. But there's always a teacher, always lots of chances to ask questions. And on the last day of the course, the silence is broken. Everybody can talk with their fellow meditators about their experience if they want to. But by this time in my talk, and certainly if you take a 10-day course, something else becomes intuitively obvious. Intuitively obvious, what is inner peace? Is Which philosophy, which religion, which uh, exemplary hero stands for inner peace. Inner peace is actually quite simple. Human beings feel peaceful when they feel love, compassion, goodwill, equanimity, self-acceptance. If and when you generate those feelings by your behavior, by your thought pattern, in that second you feel peaceful. Human beings do not feel peaceful when they are angry, filled with ill will, filled with agitation, filled with hatred, filled with resentment. If and when you 
do any behavior or generate any thought that makes you angry, bitter, resentful, aggressive, in that second, you lose your inner peace. The cultivation of inner peace is the cultivation of equanimity, love and compassion, sympathetic joy, joy that you share with others, not narcissistic joy. That's what inner peace is. It's that simple. In every second that you're sitting still and meditating, or once you stop meditating and you just now have this knowledge about yourself, in every second that you generate those emotions that we could roughly call positive emotions, you feel peaceful. And every second that you generate a different kind of emotion, whether it's emotion generated by your behavior, or your memory, your thought pattern, you don't feel peaceful. The cultivation of inner peace could be summed up in one sentence. It's the cultivation of mental purity. Purity meaning love, compassion, harmony, affiliative, joyful emotions towards oneself and others. When I was listening, the things that are universal on the path of inner peace, the last one I came to was... Uh, social responsibility, caretaking, participation. Now it becomes, once again, intuitively obvious why that step is important. It, it not only it causes inner peace and it results from inner peace. A person who's peaceful will naturally, by definition, a person who's peaceful will naturally spread that peace to other people. A person who is not spreading peace to other people is, by definition, an agitated, angry, selfish, self-absorbed, and non-peaceful person. Of course, people have different degrees of, of spreading their emotions. Some people are master communicators. John Steinbeck could write Grapes of Wrath and change the history of the United States. Most of us can't do that, but we can communicate our goodwill with our friends. Or, on the contrary, we can spread our bile. Just going to read a few passages, and then we'll stop the talk and just do questions. One of my big concerns, particularly when I was writing this book, but also, well, every day, is children, the lives of children in our society. Our, ch our, our children have lost permission to dwell in their spacious reverie of newness. They no longer inhabit the structureless domes of uninterrupted afternoons. I always say, if you weren't bored as a child, I pity you. As, you know, children inhabiting the structureless domes of uninterrupted afternoons, if you don't have a spacious sense of time and a chance to experiment and look around, if you're always structured, I think you lose something in life. So there's a great concern in my mind that children are being led into a world of incessant action and animation. Have you heard contemporary educators analogize the mind of a child to a computer? I think a peaceful mind is more like moonlight, wind, or invisible wings that are filled with lights, formlessness, and suggestions. Because I am interested in meditation and meditate and write about meditation, lots of times people address uh, forms of um, religious or spiritual thought to me as if they would think that I would be comfortable with them. 
and um, sometimes not. One of the key factors I stressed about Vipassana is realism, practicality, no uh, highfalutin ideology, just observation of reality as it is. And a corollary of that is the most important beings in this world are not on uh, the other side of some sort of channeling or uh, on some other uh, zone of existence. The most important beings in this world are the people who you live with or the people you work with or the people you encounter every day or often. So metaphorically, I say, if you haven't heard angels speaking, it's because you weren't listening. The people you live with are the messengers that history has sent to your side. There used to be, in the, in the uh, religious traditions, these seances where people would try to contact some other being. So I say, that seance is most remarkable when the spirit that you contact is the spirit of peace and love. Words are the beams of lasers for feelings that originated at the origin of the world. Every feeling you can feel is actually a vibration of your body at a certain rate of frequency, and that feeling has been there as long as the world has been there. The origin of all culture is the, is the family or the people you live with. If there's a culture, it means that it's a way that people get along with each other in close proximity. Tonight is Genesis. The world was not created once. It's always been created. That's a scientific fact, so I'm not speaking religion. Tonight is Genesis. Every day, every night, the world is born. Thoreau said, the age of miracles is every moment. Another big concern of mine, I grew up in the 60s, I was a product of the era of activism, so I was very concerned that meditation might make me people inactive. And particularly, my particular concern is probably the commonest one today on the planet, is the fate of the life systems of the planet. Cultivating inner peace is the most important action we can take to help planet Earth, on whose back we all ride whose breath we breathe, whose plants provide our food, whose sunlight is the source of energy for the molecules that form our body. Rather than solipsistic disinterest, the cultivation of inner peace activates our fundamental human calling to overcome our predatory egotism, which is the source of war, overpopulation, and environmental destruction. Human beings are predators. That's actually how we evolved. And we are all predators, and our predatory egotism, by egotism I mean the, the desire to establish our control over prey, predatory egotism, is the source of war, overpopulation, and environmental destruction. I hope we can reorganize our lives around the deepest gratifications that we can also feel. Love, sympathetic joy, compassion, peace of heart and mind. Inner peace in humanity is Earth's frontier. When I'm pessimistic, as many of us are today, about the fate of the Earth, we go, well, human beings are destroying the Earth. When I'm optimistic, I say, the Earth is evolving. Human beings are a mammal on the Earth. And the way that the Earth is evolving now is 
the way that our thoughts and feelings evolve. To the extent that the thoughts and feelings of the human collectivity change, that is the actual evolution of the Earth, since human thought and feeling is the most powerful form of force upon the Earth at this moment. So inner peace in humanity is Earth's frontier. As you grow in inner peace, your relationship to the world will change. Plants and animals will become your beloved and intimate neighbors. You will experience all beings in an essentially new way. Dawn is everywhere all the time. The genesis is everywhere all the time. Dawn is everywhere all the time. Actually, as our planet rotates, it's dawn somewhere every single minute. It's always dawn. All beings are our kin. All living things are made of the same life material. We eat other living things, then we die. Other living things get our molecules. When I listen to thrushes, I don't know if you have beautiful thrushes out here in the woods of Minnesota. Probably do. I realize that they are my companions. When you listen to the songs of bird, not to identify them by species, just listen to what they're emitting as a feeling. You realize they're my fellow mortals. They're composing sacred songs that express my own feelings. When you listen to birds, you feel peace. That's because they're singing it. Psychologically, whatever we see, we must have the neurological capacity to see, or we couldn't see it. For example, we see a certain range of light. We call it visible light. There's other kinds of light called infrared light, which we can't see. We say it's invisible, but it's there. So whatever we see actually just represents us. It's not necessarily a representation of the totality of reality. So I like to close with the thought that although there have been great scriptures that have been written, there are still other scriptures that are waiting to be written and that are rotating in our minds today. So I want to stop the talk and uh, we can have questions. Please say a little about the title of your book. Is that from there? Yeah. But cultivating Inner Peace, you mean? Or Karma and Chaos? Or which is Karma and Chaos? Oh, okay. So... Um, there's two books out there, Cultivating Inner Peace. I can't say more about that. Karma and Chaos. Um, that's a collection of essays, so the essays in it are quite different. Uh, it's not just one book. The, the two essays of, of note just to talk about, maybe there's three essays of note to talk about. One is Why I Sit. That essay I wrote many years ago, meditators often refer to their meditation practice as sitting, somewhat wry way of talking about it. And that essay is about my personal motives and experiences about why I sit. And uh, it was written many years ago, and people seem to like it, so that was the main force in that book being published. The title, Karma and Chaos, is the final essay in that book, and it's my attempt to sew together science and meditation more rigorously. One of the ideas that uh, I had most trouble with as a Western scientist in approaching Vipassana meditation was the idea of karma. And so in that essay, I try to answer 
myself, my problems, and the problems of many people in dealing with the concept of karma. I would say I've come to look upon karma as a very, very important, in fact, it's the key to uh, sustaining a life as a meditator and valuing meditation is the idea of karma. But an important jump that needs to be taken by me and maybe by others, so that's why I wrote it up, is um, not all causality is linear. So chaos theory, a modern way of looking at scientific causality, shows us that things um, can be connected to each other, but not in an immediate or palpable way. And it leads to people asking questions, you know, like, well, this person committed this heinous crime and they're pretty successful and happy, and so that shows there's no karma. Well, it doesn't show that at all. It, it, what it shows is that the link between cause and effect may be complicated. So in that essay, which is quite complicated and has a little bit of math in it that my son taught me, and uh, it's an attempt to show the complexity and authenticity of causal thinking as it applies to the concept of karma. There's also an essay in that book about mental health and uh, psychiatry and meditation. So, Excellent. We know that people experience extreme situations, wars, abuse, torture, and that these traumas leave a pattern of fear and anxiety. How does insight meditation approach this? That's a very, very good question. Um, I, you know, my... Uh, a, a few thoughts jump into my mind. The, the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder is a psychiatric concept, but very much in popular mind. And that concept started when psychiatrists were studying Vietnam vets. Of course, there's always been traumatized people, but a formal study is more recent. And the initial definition of trauma was an experience that's very extreme and lies outside of what ordinary people would ever experience. And one example that was given was violent combat. Most people don't experience that, even most soldiers. They're not actually on the front line. But that seemed very uh, sexist and limiting and so forth. And people said, well, look, uh, women have trauma, rape is trauma, divorce is trauma. And so the concept of trauma was broadened to include things like uh, death of a loved one, death of a child, uh, death of a marital partner, rape, uh, physical assault. And then when that group of definitions was tried to apply to post-traumatic stress disorder, the concept fell apart because almost everybody has been traumatized. So the original idea that trauma was some bad thing that only happened to a few people is very fallacious. If you do population studies, almost everybody's had really bad experiences. So um, this is not new. This was uh, present in the time of the Buddha. There was, in those days, mass warfare, genocidal warfare. The legends, I don't know how true these are, that the Buddha's uh, ethnic group, the Sakyas, were exterminated within his own lifetime. So the Parsha meditation is not naive or based upon a world that's free of people with these massive assaults to their sense of integrity. I would speak to it from two sides. A person who feels acutely overwhelmed by their trauma would not be advised to take a meditation course. You do have to participate for 10 days in a silent atmosphere, although you get teaching and supportive guidance from the teacher, and there are people cooking for you and caring for you. Still, you have to be able to maintain your psychological well-being, 
in long hours of silence and meditation. So a person who's acutely suffering and acutely overwhelmed probably doesn't belong in a meditation course. But people who have had severe traumas of the kind that this questionnaire asks, wars, abuse, torture, thousands of them have taken meditation courses. The most touching example, I don't know if it may relate to some people in this room, many of the Cambodian refugees in the United States faced uh, extremities that are unspeakable. And uh, Cambodian people in the United States are very commonly seen at and participating in and benefiting from the Pashina courses. Of course, we've had combat veteran, veterans of every war come to the Pashina courses. So the answer is the Pashina deals with these extreme situations with the same truths, but obviously it's going to be hard for a person to work with those plights. That doesn't mean they can't be worked with. Just the opposite. They definitely can be worked with. We got a million questions, so Ah, very interesting. Can you illuminate or dispel the idea or difference between a peaceful person and a passive avoidant person? Excellent question. I tried to address that, but to make it more specific, this questioner is saying, are peaceful people just uh, people who are avoiding life? They're passive, they're acquiescent, and um, it's actually a not healthy thing. And I worried about that a great deal. Certainly the stereotypes of Eastern meditation going back only... 30 years when I was starting my interest was exactly that. You know, the British conquered India because Indians were weak and the British were aggressive. Some stereotype of such nature as if conquest is a justifiable action or then therefore, uh, you know, that shows that Hitler was kind of good. He was a very assertive personality and there's nothing wrong with what he did. So why that got applied to India and didn't get applied to the rest of Europe, for example, I don't know. But that fear is in the West. The fear, and I share that, the fear that meditation will make you passive in a, in a negative, uh, helpless, avoidant sense. So a few answers to that are, um, if we look at the Buddha as an emblematic story, if you look at statues of the Buddha, the guy's always sitting still. He's not doing a damn thing. But if you read the Buddha's life, you find out he was a hyperactive guy. In fact, he probably should have done a little more meditation. He was always on the move, always talking to people. If you count up the number of lines he spoke and imagine a person spending their life speaking that, you see a very socially committed, what today we would call a social activist wandering all over India, actively seeking out places of trouble to intervene actively. Then I have the example, personally I have the example of my teacher, Mr. Goenka, who's done the same kind of thing. Um, in a poem I've written about him, the thing I comment on most saliently is how much jet lag he must have experienced to serve the students he was teaching and served them entirely for free and now he's in his mid-70s and continues to constantly put himself out on behalf of other people. So I'd say the the originator of Vipassana and the um, emblematic teacher of Vipassana don't exemplify passivity at all. Now that we have Vipassana commonly in the West, I mean somebody could do a study on this, does meditation make people more passive and avoidant, but the, the difference between passivity and Vipassana are that passivity is avoiding the unpleasant. Vipassana is encountering or confronting the unpleasant. It's not unlike a flip side of the coin of the question about trauma. The answer is 
if we can encounter and confront these things objectively, using meditation to take us to the depth of our feeling life, we become less avoidant and less fearful. I love what you said about, uh, if, if you weren't bored as a child, I pity you. What do you think about the emphasis on children spending more and more time on computers and TV? I, I think it's extremely destructive. A human being is primarily relational. Even if you think of us as predators, we are not solitary predators. When human beings were hunting mammals, we hunted in bands, in packs, not primarily as solitary hunters. The Native Americans consider the wolf their closest kin because the wolf hunts in a pack. So at our worst, we're social. At our best, we're social. I was saying the messengers we get from eternity are the people right around us, all of whom are just born in this time and who are near us and who are the feedback we're going to get in our lifetime. So the social connection is the most important connection. The verbal connection is very important. Meditation happens in silence, but people share a life through words and physical proximity. Those human beings who grow up primarily relating to electronic stimuli are going to be less proficient in relating to people. Obviously, I'm not completely against these forms of communication, forms of expression, forms of intelligence like computers, but when children are exposed to them without limits, when children are overexposed to them, it's just as dangerous as exposing children to food without limits. Food is very healthy, everybody should eat. But if you just leave around a bunch of ice cream and Twinkies and say, kids eat what you like, that's not parenting. So it's not parenting to allow children to set their own limits on instruments that can destroy their capacity to relate. Can you please comment on the difference between the act of meditation and the state of meditation? Very good question. Um, there used to be a lot of interest in when meditation was becoming a popular word for the first time. Beatles were meditating. You know, what's an alpha wave? Is TM give you alpha waves? There is no such thing as a state of meditation. Never heard of it. Once you join a meditation course, you'll never hear anything like that. Meditation, as I described, is all states of mind. Every single state of mind you've ever had should eventually come up in meditation. And the way you will learn to cultivate peace of mind is those states, many states of meditation that bring you harmony and peace. You'll go, this is what I've been looking for, now I have to cultivate this every day in my life. Those states of mind, thousands of them, that bring you distress, you'll go, well, why have I been cultivating them? Why have I been living this way? Why have I been thinking and feeling in these patterns that make me miserable? So the state of meditation is all states of mind. An experienced meditator is someone who has meditated through every state of mind that their mind can have. <laughs> I'll skip that one in a second. <laughs> yeah, right. How often is Vipassana offered? What areas of the country? Excellent question. There should be pamphlets in the back that answer that question. Vipassana, there's no day of the year where you can't take a Vipassana course in the United States, but uh, that would require some travel. We have centers in uh, Massachusetts, Washington State, Texas, and there are also some centers in Canada near the United States and Vancouver and also in the east in Quebec. But uh, here there are two Vipassana courses a year so far. If more people come, there will be more courses. But uh, 
there are schedules and there's a website and there are pamphlets that will tell you that. But basically, whatever your schedule is, if you can travel, you can find a portion of course that would be available at your vacation time. Is Vipassana meditation Buddhism, or do you consider it Buddhism? It's not Buddhism. I don't consider it Buddhism. The difference is Buddhism is an organized religion. Somebody says, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm not Buddhist, or I'm Islamic, so I'm not Buddhist. Vipassana is just, as I described it, it's a education in happiness. It's a uh, free transmission. No one becomes a Buddhist because they take a Vipassana course. No one stops being a Buddhist because they take a Vipassana course. Someone can be born a Buddhist and never have heard of Vipassana. Someone can have no interest in Buddhism at all. In India, there are um, hundreds of Catholic priests, Jesuits, who've taken Vipassana courses. There was a period of time when, in order to become a Jesuit in India, you had to take a Vipassana course. Jesuits were convinced these courses help people attain peace of mind. So there's no connection between Buddhism and Vipassana at a formal level. The Buddha taught Vipassana, that's all. And one sees many people who hold and carry themselves with habitual tension patterns, tension patterns and imbalances that express inner conflict and lead to disease states. Do you have anything to say about using such observational systems as the Alexander Technique or Feldenkrais? Uh, I don't uh, particularly know those techniques well, although, of course, I know a little just generalities about them. But a very important distinction. Vipassana does work with your mind and body. Remember, it's observing the sensations of your body neutrally. You're using your mind to observe your body, so you're eliminating that dualism because the mind and body are self-observed, integrated. But Vipassana's intention is not health. If someone is using a similar technique for health, that's fine. But Vipassana is not intended for health. Vipassana is intended as a way of life to bring peace and happiness to the individual and then to the individuals who surround that individual and then to the individuals who surround those. All people die. Whether you're healthy or not, you're going to die. Vipassana is taught from the standpoint of those values that will hold your life together, those ways of being a person that are going to feel valuable when you're healthy and when you're sick. I'm thinking about becoming a professional psychologist. Do the teachings in college jive with Buddhist thought? Or would I need to go to a special college? <laughs> well, you know, psychology is taught very variously. And uh, now Buddhism has become widely taught in the United States. So there are many, many colleges that teach Buddhism. Again, Vipassana is not Buddhism. Any person who's trying to be a psychologist and a Buddhist, there are programs in that, but one would have to struggle a bit because uh, there, there remains a lot of um, disjunctions between Western psychological thought and the teaching of the Buddha. So it takes a, it takes a kind of a personal commitment to make that integration. Well, here's a quote. It's very nice, but it's not a question. Why does the human animal have so much difficulty achieving a peaceful mind when it seems so easy for other animals? There's that famous line in Walt Whitman, I think I'll go and live with animals. They seem so peaceful and self-contained. None of them 
seem to whine. None of them worship their ancestors. <laughs> That's in Lee's Press. Um, well, I don't really know. I don't remember my life as other animals, so I don't know how peaceful they are. But when I observe animals, they actually seem to have a pretty difficult life. You know, I, I, I love deer. I love to look at deer. We have quite a few deer in New England. I think we have quite a few deer here. Very, very, very fearful beings, constantly on the alert. My favorite wild animal are rabbits. The scientists say that a rabbit lives about a year or two in the wild. They are really a protein factory for coyotes, wolves, foxes, dogs, cats, owls. So I don't know what it's like to be another animal. But for a human being, we also have these um, avaricious, aggressive hunting instincts. So I think that's why it's difficult for us, that we're, we're a mixed level of development. We do have these uh, peaceful aspirations, these higher uh, goals for ourselves, but we also contain uh, a predator within ourselves. You did not mention the word attention, but I assume it plays a part in your approach. What is your understanding of attention? Attention is very important. When you meditate, you are turning your attention towards something which you usually do not turn your attention toward. Very subtle stimuli within your body. If we start with breathing, you turn your attention to just observing breathing. That's not something you usually do. Therefore, when you start to meditate, you'll find that you have no attention whatsoever. Everybody starts with attention deficit disorder. One of the very great advantages of meditation, though it's not really a goal of meditation, is the, is the development of increased attention into areas of life that are hard to attend to. This makes you a much more attentive person. I started with that metaphor of a great biologist because I think great biological scientists are people who attend to subtle things in the world that we all can see, but they attend more carefully and therefore see better. So meditation cultivates attention, requires attention, but the ultimate goal is not merely attention. It is uh, a broader, more uh, depth of human experience. It seems that living in an active American family is not conducive to inner peace. How can one get through family life to cultivating inner peace? Very difficult question. Um, maybe that's the hardest question of all. It does seem that our homes have stopped being realms of peace. People used to return home and breathe a sigh of relief. Now people return home, flick on the computer, find their 28 emails behind. I was amazed when uh, our son was in his freshman year in college and uh, we called him up or spoke to him or something. He said it had a hard day. He had 48 emails to answer. This is a, that was an 18-year-old boy at the time, and that, that's his home, is his college room. So that's a very hard question. Within one's own life, I would say, uh, the question is how to be selective and then how to convey this to others in a way that's not belligerent. Not belligerent, because if you say our home is too noisy and you're making a lot of fuss here and I can't be peaceful so you're a jerk, that's hardly conducive to inner peace. So the question is how to convey one's need for some, whatever you say, meditation, selective living, awareness of nature, how to create the space and time within one's own home. I think the most important step is to take the step oneself. 
very, very few people are going to countermand you, prevent you from taking this step. But many people will inadvertently interfere. So the first step is to try to deepen one's own commitment and take take action on one's own life. And then the second step is to try to communicate to others that this is positive, not negative. People often say things like, well, you're not doing this. That means you're against. You don't watch TV. That means you're against TV. That's not why I don't watch it. I don't watch it because I'm for something else. I'm busy. I'm busy meditating. I don't have time for TV. Nevertheless, I don't mean to be glib. I think that's a really hard problem. It's, it's the great crisis of our time is the loss of domestic tranquility. I understand that children may not be in a building where an adult group sitting is taking place. This makes it hard for single parents or couples to participate fully in the life of the meditation community. How do children fit into the life of the meditation community? They use the word sangha means community. Of course, a parent meditating at home is a better parent and sets a good example, but my own practice suffers from lack of group sitting. Another very good question. When you become a meditator, you're free to meditate anytime, place. Hopefully every meditator does meditate in their home. There's no point in learning the technique if you don't use it. But a single parent or parents with young children definitely face a challenge. And the opportunity to sit with other people, to meditate with other people is a great part of meditation practice, just like any activity, it's uh, very pleasant to share meditation with others. You're sitting still, your eyes are closed, but still other people are there. You're very much aware of the presence of other people. Meditating with other people is uh, exquisite, definitely something to look forward to. And so here, a single mother or somebody with young children will have difficulty. That's true. But a, a couple of answers. One is the difficulty is not absolute. Nobody's with their child all the time. Nobody should be with their child all the time. A couple should be able to find time for each member of the couple to have a certain amount of freedom and meditate. Eventually children go to bed, though it always seems like it's a little bit too late. A single parent, of course, this would be very difficult. The other thing about children, for better or for worse, every parent finds out too late, really, it was too late for me, you find out they grow up. They're gone. So it's not a permanent state. Don't worry. If you're in the life stage where it is very difficult to meditate, if you're a single parent with a little child at home, that will change. It will definitely change. The child will learn to read. The child will go to school. The child will be in school many, many hours. By the time the child is 16, they won't even want to talk to you. So you'll, <laughs> you'll have tons of time to meditate. But there are, there are some life stages and some life developments where one has to wait. Is there a difference between inner peace and psychotherapy? And if so, what is it? <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but... Would inner peace stimulate or destroy creativity? Two linked questions. Psychotherapy is a specific professional procedure in which one person helps another person through professional skills that have been learned, mastered, practiced, and usually licensed. Psychotherapy can certainly be helpful to many, many people. I've invested a great deal of my life in the practice of psychotherapy. It's not the same as meditation. They shouldn't be confused, nor should one be used to devalue the other. I sometimes use the image, because this question comes up frequently, so it's like saying, what's more important, sleep or food? 
Well, the answer is they're both very important. You don't want to devalue one because of the other. You don't want to say, I had a good night's sleep, so I'm not going to eat today. They're both, they're both valuable. So psychotherapy is valuable for those people who feel they need, want, or will benefit from the one-on-one focused attention and knowledge and skill of a trained professional using their professional training to help with very specific problems. It can be a helpful step on the path of inner peace for someone who has problems that they feel would best respond to psychotherapy. It is not the path of inner peace. It doesn't have all those steps and stages that I talked about. It can be one important step. Would inner peace stimulate or destroy creativity? A great question because, again, the questions imply this very attitude which I myself carried for a long time, which is, well, I think I want inner peace. Naturally, I want to feel better. I don't want to feel uh, anxious or frazzled, but uh, I don't know. It could be dangerous. Maybe I'll become passive. Maybe I'll become a blob, uncreative, unthoughtful. It's a reasonable question. I would say, again, the evidence, the historical record seems to imply the opposite. The more you find people cultivating inner peace, the more you find people responding to deep inner stimuli. That is, people become more in touch with themselves. Remember, the final definition I gave of inner peace is purity, cultivating purity, pure states of mind, being aware of what you feel, cultivating those states of mind that make you feel good, make you feel peaceful, not cultivating those states of mind that make you feel angry, agitated, hateful. So inner peace is synonymous with deep self-knowledge. I, I would think it would make a person much more creative. Ah, so here's an answer to a previously asked question. But There's a school of Buddhist psychology. I don't know who asked the two questions, but those people can get together. Somebody knows the name of a school of Buddhist psychology. How do you achieve inner peace without disturbing everyday tasks? Is there any way to get peace without putting the time or effort for busy people? The first, yeah, well, let's start with the second one. Absolutely no way. Yeah, if you don't have time or effort or energy for this, the answer is how are you imagining you're going to get it? The analogy I often use is playing the piano. Nobody says, I want to learn the piano, but I don't have any time. Is there a simple method I can use 15 minutes on weekends to learn the piano? Or I want to learn to speak French or Spanish. Is there a simple method I can do 15 minutes on weekends and learn Spanish? Ridiculous. So, no, there's no way you can uh, get inner peace or learn meditation without some effort and some time. But you can uh, live a life without dis- disturbing everyday tasks, definitely. And that was one of the points I tried to emphasize. Practical people can become meditators. The idea that meditation is for withdrawn monastic or hermetic people, something I've tried to dispel this evening. Inner peace is definitely a similar task, whether one is living in a monastery or in the world. It's always predominantly about one's own emotional life. The way one thinks, feels, and cultivates one's own emotion is the primary predictor of how one will feel. So the task of inner peace is possible with a busy but thoughtful, focused, selected life. How are we doing? Seems like a long time. Should we go up to 9 o'clock, maybe? Another few minutes. Buddha did not create a religion, did not intend to. Do you observe this? How do you establish this 
fact that Buddha did not create a religion, did not intend to. Yeah. Um, well, if you read the, the words of the Buddha, there's no reference to Buddhism. And he emphasized that people should retain good relationships within their communities and even within their religious communities. It did happen within the Buddha's lifetime, and there's uh, reports on this where people would say to him, look, I'm a Hindu or a Jain. These were the religions of ancient India, and I don't believe in that stuff, and I want to become a, one of your followers. And the Buddha, with the teaching was, you can certainly practice what I'm teaching. It doesn't matter what your ethnic religious background is. So, yes, you can practice Vipassana meditation. But no, do not leave your community. Do not leave your um, religious group. Don't create enmity. Don't make meditation and Vipassana an antagonist or something that will deplete other communities. Instead, practice Vipassana. Go back within your own family circle, your own community, and share your good feelings, your well-being within that community. So that's how we know the Buddha was explicitly fighting off the wish of other people that he be founding a religion. And instead... He insisted he was uh, dispensing a form of education, a form of insight into oneself, a way of being a person, but not fragmenting, splitting, or separating himself from any religious group. I'm trying to, maybe we'll make this the last question. Uh, I think I can hang around because some of these weren't answered, but it's 9 o'clock, so we'll make this the last question and stop. I'm trying to get into making meditation a habit in my life. Question, is there any special posture to practice this? No. In fact, the Buddha's teaching was, ultimately you want to be able to practice in every posture. Of course, if you start practicing, for example, by lying down, which the Buddha did teach, that lying down is one of the classic postures. But if you start lying down, you'll just cock out. So it's the wrong way to start, but it's not the wrong way to meditate. Typically, the most... Um, helpful posture is if a person can sit still cross-legged. That posture gives optimum alertness and a subtle balance of just adequate muscle tension to hold the back up and the legs crossed and just enough absence of attention since the body seems to fit pretty well in that posture. Many Westerners, many older people, many people with various orthopedic problems can't do that. The next best thing is to sit in a comfortable chair if, if something is too uh, enveloping, one will fall asleep. Meditation can be relaxing, should be relaxing. And so a chair that's kind of uh, doesn't give you upright posture will lead to sleep. So the, the, the only, there's no formal requirement. People can and should ultimately learn to meditate in any posture. The commonest posture is sitting cross-legged. A chair is a pretty good uh, second choice. Generally, a symmetrical upright posture is best. Let's stop for tonight, and then I'll hang around because some of these didn't get answered. So. Find this and many more podcasts at Pariati, a nonprofit publisher who offers written, audio, and video content, and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information, please go to www.pariati.org. That is www.pariati.org. For more information on Vipassana meditation, 
including a schedule of courses taught throughout the world, please go to www.dhamma.org. That is www.dhamma.org.